Morning, Sun Valley. I look forward to preaching to you the Word of God this morning. I feel that there are some important things here that the Lord would have for us as a church to hear and as members of His church here at Sun Valley for you personally to hear. I don't know all of your circumstances, but I do know many of them. And I know that the things that the Apostle Paul writes for us here in our section of Scripture today is pertinent. If you have your Bible still with you, please open it to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, we are working our way through this wonderful little letter that Paul wrote to the church in Colossae in the first century, who was pastored by a man named Epaphras, who traveled to Rome to visit the Apostle Paul to share with him some concerns about his church, his fledgling church. And this letter is the result of that conversation between Paul and Epaphras. To address the issues that were facing this, this small, fledgling, struggling church. And one of the things that we're going to see today is a continuation of what I began last week concerning the ministry. Not just Paul's ministry, but the ministry that God has called each and every person who is a believer into. So if you're sitting here today in Christ, then the ministry that Paul is discussing that I'm going to preach on here in a moment is the ministry to which you have been called. So let's, let's dive into our text this morning. And I'm going to begin with verse 24 and read through verse 29. Paul writes, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, to them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of, his, of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So here the Apostle Paul is describing ministry in these few verses. He's, he began discussing the idea of ministry in verse 23 because he had just mentioned that God had made him a minister of the gospel in verse 23. So he decides to expound a little bit uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit concerning what ministry is because the Holy Spirit knows that we all need to know exactly what God has called us to. We may have our own employments, our own vocations, our own interests, our own families, even different places in the world in which we live, but everybody in God's church has been, been given an assignment that Paul is describing as ministry. And so this morning I hope that you will see that there is a particularly and focused area of ministry to which God has called you as a Christian. Last week, if you remember, I talked to you about the source of ministry and 
the source of ministry that Paul describes is from God, right? His ministry, of course, began on the road to Damascus when Jesus knocked him off his donkey and confronted him about his persecution of the church and then assigned him the ministry of the gospel, a courier of the gospel, to the Gentiles. And then Paul goes on to describe the attitude of ministry that we all should have, which is what? Joy. Even though our ministry may be difficult, uh, may be painful even, Paul says that the ministry that, or the attitude that we ought to maintain in ministry is joy. And I tried, to, I tried to challenge you last week concerning this because I think at times we, we tend to lose the joy of ministry that God has called us to. And then I, f- I finished last week's sermon with the focus of the ministry. Paul says the focus of the ministry, of course, is to make the word of God fully known. Make the gospel fully known, not just to the non-believers in your life, but to the believers in your life. Anyone watching, anyone paying attention, make the word of God fully known. And so today I want to pick up where we left off last week and continue Paul's thought here concerning the ministry. And my first point is found in verse 25, the mission of the ministry. The mission of the ministry. What are we supposed to be doing? What are you supposed to be doing? What's the purpose for which God has called you to minister? Well, I want to unpack this as as Paul here reveals the mission of the ministry. He begins in verse 25 by saying he wanted to make the, the word of God fully known. And then in verse 26, he goes right into it. And he says, he uses this word mystery as a synonym, really, for making the word of God fully known. It's a a mystery. He says, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, verse 26, but now revealed to the saints. Now, I don't know about you, but I think you're like me. We like mysteries, don't we? we? We kind of like to be engaged with the mystery, to guess the outcomes. Mysteries kind of require us to keep track of clues and add them up to come to some conclusion. Um, There's hints, of course, that come along the way in the story, but other clues are just revealed kind of obscurely. And if you're not paying attention, you miss them. The mystery that Paul wrote of here is not dissimilar to that. He's talking about something that was hidden for ages and generations, speaking of Old Testament times, but now has been revealed. So the Old Testament, if you think of of the mystery as beginning in the Old Testament, is full of clues about this mystery, isn't it? We we learn early on, actually, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, which is the, the first clue, the first hint of the solution to the problem that's created, is that God would send a Savior. Send a savior to his people. So that's the very first clue. And we begin to track these clues. We discover that there's more to this very broad promise in Genesis 3, chapter, chapter 3, verse 15. It becomes more focused, more detailed, uh, more clear. The, more, the longer you move into the Old Testament, the more clear and focused this revelation of the mystery comes. And so as you track these clues, you learn that the Messiah, which is the focus of the ministry, will come from Abraham, right? You learn that in Genesis. 
Then you learn that the promised Savior will come from the people of Israel. And then the tribe of Judah. And then the family of David. And so this mystery begins to take on clarity. And we begin to understand more and more the longer we read in the Old Testament exactly what the mystery is. So more details for you. And you'll remember all of these. The Messiah be born in Bethlehem tells us in the Old Testament, in the Minor Prophets, that he would be divine, that the Messiah would dwell with his people, and that he would forgive their sins and save them from their sins. So, when here in Colossians chapter 1, Paul uses the word mystery, he wasn't talking or suggesting that there was some secret teaching that only he was aware of. No, he's talking about this mystery that begun that began in ages past was initiated in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, continued through the Old Testament, and now is coming into clear focus in the New Testament. That's the mystery he's talking about. This word now, if you'll see this, it says, To them God has made known how great among the Gentiles is the riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And he says in verse 26, now is revealed to the saints. So it was hidden in the past, but now, when is now? At the, at the moment of this writing is now, when Jesus arrived on the planet is now. Now we know the solution to the mystery, the end of the mystery. What was revealed? That God would become man and dwell among us to live and die for us. That's the mystery that Paul is speaking us speaking to us about. So God made this known to the church through the Old Testament scriptures, through the Apostle Paul, which, Jesus, which Paul calls the saints. So in verse 26, we see a reference in verse 27 to them. Now I want you to look at your text, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, to them it is revealed. That, who's them? Us. We are them. We're the church. It wasn't that this hidden mystery was finally solved after centuries of investigation. No, God revealed it. He announced the incarnation of God through the Old Testament prophets, then fully revealed it to Zechariah, you remember, and then to Mary, and then to Joseph, and then the shepherds, among others, including the Apostle Paul and all the apostles, that the God of heaven became man to live amongst us, to live and die for us and forgive our sins. So what was the mission of Paul, Paul's ministry that Jesus gave him? What, what is our mission that the Apostle Paul has given us? Why did God become man? I want you to see the first point that Paul identifies, to see Christ in you. That's the first part of the mission. That's the first part of the mission, to see Christ in you. More than God becoming man, the amazing mystery gets even better. I mean, it, it's amazing enough that God, our creator, would become one of us. Isn't that spectacular? But it gets better. <laughs> this God of heaven who became one of us takes up residence in us. That's profound. Christ in you. This was most mysterious. 
God taking up residence in his people? I mean, I, I can understand because of his exalted nature, him blessing us, but remaining outside of us, no. It says that he came to take up residence within us, within you, within me. How does this work? Well, listen to how Paul describes this phenomenon in Galatians chapter 2. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The God of heaven lives in me, Paul said. He says something similar to the, to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 6.16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Paul is asking the, his readers to answer. For, for we, that is Christians, are the temple of the living God. The God of heaven, what a mystery, has come to earth to take up residence in our hearts. <laughs> it says at the end of verse 16 in 2 Corinthians, Paul quotes this clue from as far back as Leviticus, Leviticus 26. Do you see it? Quoting Leviticus, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. As far back as Leviticus 26 was this mystery building towards the climax of the arrival of God on heaven to take up residence in his people. What a mystery. The reason that this mystery, Paul says, brings hope of glory. You see that there? Christ in you, verse 27, the hope of glory. How does Christ in you bring about the hope of glory? <laughs> well, first of all, before I answer the question in detail, hope in the New Testament isn't wishful thinking. Like, I sure hope the Mariners do well this year. Uh, that's wishful thinking as the greatest example. But wishful thinking is not what Paul's talking about when he talks about hope in the New Testament. Hope in the New Testament is a settled confidence in unseen things. It's a certainty based on the promises of God himself. Hope of glory. Isn't I sure hope I make it to glory? No, it is this a certain persuasion because of God's promises that this will happen. Our hope of glory is based on the divine presence in each and every Christian, each and every one of us in this room who knows Jesus, which guarantees future glory. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14 helps us with this. Paul says this, In him you also, that is in Christ, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed, pay attention, sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, that is the third person of the Trinity, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. How do you know that you're going to be in glory one day? Because God has given you the Holy Spirit to take up residence to get you there. That's why you're going to be there one day. That's the hope of glory. So this was always God's eternal plan, amazingly enough, which is why he could start dropping clues throughout the Old Testament. He had planned this from before time began. And so along the way, he could drop these clues to the human race of what is about to happen, clarifying for us this mystery. 
So this revealed mystery includes the amazing revelation that God's mercy and grace will be extended to Gentiles. Dennis mentioned this earlier. Aren't you glad that that's part of the plan? That God would go beyond just the physical descendants of Abraham and include all Gentiles? Uh, now, I don't know if there's any Jews, as Dennis said, present, but those of us who are Gentiles ought to rejoice in that. God decided that part of the mystery would be to include you and me. Not the physical descendants of Abraham, to whom the promise was actually made, but also the spiritual descendants of Abraham, those who believe by faith. It includes us, praise God. So through you, you remember what God said to Abraham, through you, all nations will be blessed. Not just your descendants will be blessed, all nations will be blessed through you. How? Through this Savior who saves Gentiles. That's how. So what was Paul's mission of the ministry that Jesus gave him? That, that Jesus gives us through the apostle Paul's pen. What is the mystery? Christ in you. God does take up residence in his people. What a mysterious and glorious truth that is. But it continues. This mystery gets more excellent. Not just to place or take up residence in you, but to grow you towards Christ-likeness. To grow Christ in you. To stick to the outline. So the mission is more than just evangelism. We may think of evangelism and discipleship as two different things, right? If you've grown up in the church, you're familiar with these words. Yeah, let's go out and evangelize the community and let's show up on Wednesday night to get discipled, right? Well, the Apostle Paul didn't separate them. They were one and the same in Paul's mind. His understanding of the commission that he received from Jesus on the Damascus Road was part of the great commission that Jesus gave, gave everyone in Matthew 28. All his church, that is. And what is the great commission? Well, we read it earlier, but let me just ask you to access your memory here for a second. When we think about the great commission that Jesus gave in Matthew 28, what do we generally think of? Evangelism, don't we? Go into all the world. Go, just get out of here and go, right? That's the Great Commission. But the Great Commission is greater than evangelism. It is to go into all the world, and what's the critical next phrase? And make disciples. Not make converts. Make disciples. Paul makes this abundantly clear in verse 28 of Colossians 1. Do you see it? He says... Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. He is clarifying what the commission is. It's not just the conversion of heathen or pagans. No, it's the maturing of these people in Christ. To grow Christ in you is what Paul wants. So it's all the same process 
in Paul's mind. Evangelism and discipleship are both parts of the Great Commission, two sides of the same coin. I want you to look at verse 28 in your Bibles, and if you are a Bible-marking person, which I hope you are, I want you to circle the word we, second word in the English Standard Version, him we proclaim. So this is really important for us. Of course, the primary reference here that Paul is suggesting is we being the authors of this letter, Paul, Timothy, and Epaphras. But we goes beyond that to every Christian who knows Jesus. This is what we do. This is what the commission is about. It is that we proclaim the gospel, that we disciple people to maturity. And so Paul includes every one of us who are in Christ. We all are commanded to obey God's commission to make disciples. So how are we going to make disciples that become mature? How are we going to do that as a church? As individual believers, how are we going to do this, obey the command? So it says in verse 28, him we what? Proclaim. So we must open our mouths. That's how we proclaim things. It's important that we're just not living our squeaky clean lives and hoping that our neighbors come to Jesus. I've said this before, but there's a lot of people out there that are nicer than us that aren't Christians. So it's not about the squeaky clean life. It's about proclamation of the gospel, speaking words. In order for anyone to come to faith, they must hear the gospel. Faith comes by what? Living a squeaky clean life? No, faith comes by what? Hearing, yes, the word of Christ. No one is born again by way of exemplary Christian living. The gospel must be proclaimed. And Paul divides the proclamation for us here in verse 28 into two parts. You see what they are? The first is warning. For him we, uh, him we proclaim warning everyone. What does this word mean? It has the idea of counseling. It's where we get the idea of neuthetic counseling. In fact, the Greek word is neutheteo. It's counseling. This type of proclamation is something that every preacher must fulfill, every counselor must fulfill. But remember, he said we. It's everything that we must fulfill. We must be willing to warn, to counsel one another, to, to say, hey, you need to be careful about this or that. That'll draw you away from Christ. So Paul used this same word again um, when he wrote to the Thessalonians and the Corinthians to warn those who were in Christ, who were living in sin. I warn you, Paul said in numerous places, but so that we don't have to leave the context of this letter, Colossians, I want you to see on the overhead what he said in chapter 3 of verse 16 of Colossians. Use the very same word. Let, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing. It's the same word as warning in verse 28 of chapter 1 admonishing one another with all wisdom. So it looks like this, if you will, and this isn't, this isn't comprehensive, but this is to stay focused here within 
the walls of this building and uh, the, the company of this church. If one of us has a besetting sin, and by the way, we all do, but if we have a besetting sin that other believers notice, then it is the responsibility of a loving brother or sister to gently admonish or warn them to turn from that sin. Now, as intrusive and as offensive as that may sound to the world, you mean you're going to tell me that I got a problem? Hey, let's talk about the log in your eye for a minute. We might respond. But keep in mind that Paul is instructing us to admonish, warn one another concerning sin. So was Paul the only one who, who said warn each other? Or, no. Or address each sin in each other's lives? No. Jesus did. Remember Matthew 18? Yeah. Jesus commanded this very same thing. So he commanded believers to address sin in each other's lives, and Paul did it regularly. The next thing I want you to see that is part of the proclamation besides warning is teaching. Do you see that in verse 28? Warn and warn everyone, teach everyone. So if warning is negative, then teaching is positive. This is also our responsibility, Christian friend. It is certainly the responsibility of pastors and elders, but none of us are exempt. No, none of us. I'm going to refer you back to Colossians 3.16 that I just read for you. We are to admonish and teach one another. All of us. None are exempt. And how are we to do this? With all wisdom. And what is all wisdom? It's applying practical discernment to the life's challenges from biblical principles. You know how I know if you admonish me with wisdom? Is that your admonishment comes from Scripture. If it comes from your own persuasions, your own opinions, it's not with all wisdom. Uh, it's actually prejudicial. So you come to me and say, hey, my mom taught us not to play cards on Sunday, and it offends me greatly that you play cards on Sunday. Uh, that's not a lot of wisdom, friend. If, now, if you can share with me somewhere in Scripture that I'm not supposed to play cards on Sunday, I will lovingly and thankfully embrace you. But not when you come at me with your own baloney. <laughs> Talk to me about Scripture. Admonish me from Scripture with all wisdom. Not your preferences. And so here we have it. Imparting all wisdom into each other's lives. That is the responsibility of this entire church body. With biblical principles. In verse 28, Paul said that he warned everyone. Did you notice this? You may want to highlight this. He warned everyone, taught everyone, so that he would present everyone mature. He repeats these words, and whenever there's words repeated in Scripture, what do we learn? <laughs> there's an important point coming. He warned everyone, taught everyone, so that he may present everyone mature in Christ. He wanted his readers to understand that everyone should hear the gospel. Everyone should be counseled. Everyone should be taught and align their lives with the gospel. So everyone should be on our radar. Radar. Um, everyone has hope of salvation. Every one of us has hope of spiritual maturity. 
Everyone in your school should hear the gospel. Everyone at your place of work, everyone in your neighborhood should be warned and taught. That's the commission, to see Christ in you and to grow Christ in you. I remember when I was coaching high school boys soccer at West Valley, we had a Bible study in our home for quite some time. And when the players would come over, they would bring all their baggage. And I don't mean their athletic baggage. I mean their life baggage. And a lot of them had very colorful language when they entered our home, even as high schoolers. I remember speaking to Sherry about some of them and thinking, oh man, it's not sure any of these guys are going to come to faith. Look at them for Pete's sake. Uh, and it was by God's grace that many of them, and especially the more concerning ones, came to faith. And are still walking with Jesus. So it's not just that, that neighbor who fits the mold. It's not just that co-worker would make a great Christian. It's everyone. Especially the ones who don't fit the mold. So here's the summary of the mission of the ministry in verse 28. Paul said the mission of the ministry is the maturity of believers, seeing Christ in you, growing Christ in you. This is what Paul wrote to the Ephesian church in chapter 4, verses 11 through 13, very familiar passage. And he gave the apostles and the prophets and evangelists and the shepherds and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Yes, why? For the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What a statement. That is the goal of ministry. That is the mission of the ministry to see every one of us full to the fullness of Christ. And so concluding his discussion in the ministry, Paul wrote that the goal or mission of the ministry is spiritual maturity. That is the goal for each and every one of us. None of us really appreciates a 40-year-old teenager, do we? You know what that is, right? It's a 40-year-old who still thinks and acts like they're a teenager. Yeah, something's wrong there. It's the same way in the church. How long have you been in Christ? You're still acting like a child? Come on, grow in Christ. Be built up in the things of God. Follow the commands of Scripture. Be faithful to His church and to each other in the church. Our goal as Christians is to become mature. Not wealthy, not famous, mature. Faithful. And it's not just a goal, friends, it's a command. We can all deal with goals because we don't meet half of them. This is a command. Grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. Inevitably, if our conversion is genuine, we are told by the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, 29, that spiritual maturity will happen. It may take longer for some than others, but it will happen. It says we are predestined to be conformed to his image. So many times we think the goal of evangelism is conversion, but actually the goal of evangelism is spiritual maturity. 
We don't just win people to Jesus and then leave them on their own. No, we assimilate them into the body of Christ, teach and admonish them. We walk with them day by day as they learn biblical principles to live by. And so the reason that this goal ends with maturity and not conversion is part of maturity is reproduction. Go and make disciples. Grow the church. See the grace of God in the lives of everyone. So a mature believer will be the one who shares the gospel. Friends, we're on a mission. God wants his joyful followers to spread the good news. Now let me conclude with the second point, the power of the ministry. Verse 29. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. There's the power. That's how we're going to do it. So Paul put forth, of course, great effort to fulfill the mission to which Jesus called him. It was his passion. He thought about the mission. He prayed about the mission. He planned for the mission. He tirelessly used every ounce of his energy to accomplish the mission. So let's look at our part, and then we'll look at God's part. I want you to look back at verse 29. For this I toil. Paul toiled. Do you? The word toil actually means to work to the point of exhaustion. That's what the word actually means. Toil. And Paul extended extreme energy to accomplish this in the ministry to which Jesus called him. So if you're a Christian this morning and the word we applies to you, then you've been called to hard ministry. Hard ministry should cost you something, at least energy. Can I admonish you, Sun Valley Church? That's a gentle word for warn, admonish. admonish. So Paul's life is an example to us of how we ought to view the ministry that God has called each of us to. He toiled. He struggled. Do you? He endured hardship. What's the last bit of hardship you've endured for the sake of the ministry to which God has called you? Well, I can only serve once a month. Oh, okay. Obviously, Paul was set apart by God for his unique ministry, but the Bible makes abundantly clear that we have all hard work to do if we're going to follow Jesus. You remember this obscure statement, take up your cross and follow me? Yeah, it's not too obscure, is it? He told us to pray that God would supply laborers, not vacationers, laborers for the field. His parables regularly included characters that labored hard for their master. Why? Because it's part of the ministry. You've been called to a difficult ministry. Look at the next significant word there in verse 29. Struggling. I toil struggling. The Greek word is agon, agonizomai, agonizomai, and it's an athletic term used to describe maximum effort, agonizomai. It's where we get our English word agonize. Paul struggled. He agonized over the ministry. You've seen this kind of agony if you've watched sporting events. The tennis player who grunts when they serve to all of our annoyance, in effort to reach the ball, they, 
you see it in their face, slow motion, man, it's like contorting, straining, agonizing to reach the ball. And then the runner who is running a long distance race or even a short distance race actually looks like they're in severe pain, straining for the finish line. This is the max, maximum effort that Paul's referring to. A group of us men in the church just completed reading Thomas Watson's book, Heaven Taken by Storm. It's uh, a book that addresses the verse in Matthew 11 where Jesus said, those who take heaven take it by violence. And it's a reference to straining, agonizing, struggling, toiling for glory, for heaven, for spiritual maturity. Those who toil, that is, in human strength, are the same one who are heeding Jesus' warning that heaven is only taken by violence. The regenerated heart, that is, the people who have actually experienced conversion, will be a new heart that is inflamed with vigor to resist laziness, to resist apathy about sin and worldly distractions. Paul said to run the race for the prize, not just to make it across the finish line, run the race to get the prize. Run the race to be in front. Don't be last. You may have seen a long distance race where the crowd was in a frenzy as the top two or three runners strained for the finish line. The crowd is on their feet and going nuts. And then they all turn and walk away and go to the concession stand and 15 minutes later, someone else straggles across the line and no one's there to cheer him on. Don't be one of those guys, is what Paul is saying. Be in the front of the pack because you're going to hear the roar of heaven encouraging you for the finish line. What will be the end of your life be like? Will you be straining for the finish line or are you going to retire from vocation and ministry? I've served my time. Friends, will you be straining for the finish line? And if you are, let me give you some encouragement. You can expect that there's going to be a frenzied crowd cheering you on. Not just in the church, but in the church triumphant. Not just the church militant, that's us. But the church triumphant, those who've already gone before us, says this in Hebrews 12. We have a great cloud of witnesses. Who are those people? Chapter 11 describes them all. All those who have gone to glory before us, who are watching you finish. And cheering you on if you're straining. Therefore, the author says, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, all those who have gone before us are indeed watching. They're not playing harps. They're watching you. They're cheering you on. We're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight. Not sin. Weight. The things that get in your way of running fast and straining. Get rid of the weight and, of course, the sin, he says. Weight and sin, two different things. Get rid of the weight and sin, which seems to just tangle up your feet. 
that clings closely and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. So the struggle and toil for ministry is the same struggle and toil that each of us must have for holiness. They're one and the same. If you're struggling to be holy, you'll be struggling in ministry. If you're struggling in ministry, it'll require holiness. Friends, if it weren't true, why did Paul discipline his physical body? He says, I beat my body to keep it in shape so that I can minister. You know the story about Jonathan Edwards. I mean, the guy, we would consider him unbalanced because of how disciplined he was physically so that he could minister with utmost strength and focus. Why did Jesus say that heaven is only taken by violence? What role does our ministry play in this whole thing? Your ministry, personally, you. Let's, Let's now move to the second of this final point. Thankfully, Paul tells us that it isn't ultimately his own efforts by which he accomplishes anything. There's also God's part. And it's not a minor part. God supplied Paul with the necessary energy to accomplish all that he did. Look at the verse again. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, which he powerfully works within me. Aren't you thankful for that, weary Christian? Oh, friends, to to work to the bone is one thing, but to work to the bone with God's help is a different world. The energy that God provided, that he provided Paul and every believer who depends on him for strength to do what we've been called to do. But we have this battle with our sin nature, even in this arena. Because of our sin nature, we may like the idea of God's power in us, but are quick to dismiss the need for our own striving. We suggest to our apathetic selves that the reason for our lack of holiness or spiritual service or sacrificial living is that God just hasn't come through for me like he has for Jim Elliott or for John Edwards, for the heroes of our faith. He just hasn't done that for me. How do you think that's going to fly when you stand before the judgment seat? God, if you just would have supplied me the strength that you did, Jonathan Edwards, I'd be in the history books. You think that's going to fly? No. Friends, as you examine yourself, do you see a lack of zeal? What's the solution? It's all over Scripture, especially in Paul's writings. What's the solution? Pray. Confess to God your lack of zeal. Ask for God's help. What's another solution? Turn up the volume when you're listening to the word of God preached. Turn it up. If you see a lack of zeal in your life, put spiritual practices right in front of you. Right in front of your own eyes, literally. Like Jesus, being God, being perfect in every way, still put things in front of him to remind him of his mission. What did he put in front of him so that he could endure the cross? 
What did, what, what did he tape to his refrigerator? He said, for the joy set before him. He reminded himself of future joy so that he would run with diligence. So pray. Turn up the volume when you're listening to the Word of God preach. Put spiritual practices right in front of you, like this. Put your Bible next to the coffee maker every morning. So you pick up your coffee and your Bible at the same time and you read it until you're done with your coffee or longer. Tape a memory verse to the dash of your car or to your refrigerator. Set reminders on your phone when it goes off. Oh, I've got to pray. I've got to read. I've got to call. I've got to text somebody. Establish accountability partners in your life. Are you attending small group? Why not? Get there. Ask them to help you with this. Is there anything more important? No. Warm your spiritual heart to give you a final piece of help with encouraging words. Go to the Psalms. Go to a favorite religious book that has done it for you before, Pilgrim's Progress. Um, Communion of the, of the Saints with John Owen. The Glory of Christ, Owen. Any, any book that warms your heart towards Christ, keep it close by. When I was younger, I was committed to always having something that I was reading. And I've kept to that commitment. Always be reading something spiritual. I'm not talking Harry Potter. I'm talking read something spiritual of eternal value. Keep it on your nightstand. Keep it in your car. Keep it on your phone. Audiobook. What an amazing gift that is to us in the church. You can actually drive to work and listen to scripture. You can actually go from here to there and within a couple days have an entire book read. The cost of discipleship can be read into your ears. What a, what a benefit, friends. We have no excuse standing before the throne. They may have in David's day, in Paul's day, and maybe even a couple centuries ago, but nothing now. We have Logos and Audible. No excuses, man. God is eliminating excuses all around us. It's just you and him now. What's it going to be? Friends, I'm going to say this and hope you'll remember it. You now have one less day to make much of Christ than you did yesterday. I'm going to finish with this quote from St. Ignatius. Pray as if everything depended on you and work. I'm sorry, pray as if everything depended on God and work as if everything depended on you. St. Ignatius who was no minor minister. This morning we're going to serve you the Lord's Supper and I think there are obvious things to consider, right, from the text. Examine yourself, Christian friend. Sun Valley Church, examine yourself. And I would hope that between now and the moment we serve you these elements that there would be many confessions prayed to the Lord from the people in this room. That the Holy Spirit will have done a work of getting beneath the surface in your heart and encouraging this morning to think about Paul's words a little more personally. 
So as we come, do business with God. As you come, you'll come down the center aisle if you know Jesus, if you've embraced him as your Lord and Savior. If you have failed in any of the things I've preached this morning and you still know Jesus, you should be the first one in Rome, right? You don't sit in your, in your seat and pout because of your sin or your laziness. You get up front and ask for God to fulfill his promises to his people. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna pray and in, when I pray, I'm gonna invite the elders to come forward uh, to help serve you. And then I'm gonna read the words of institution. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, what a privilege we have in this moment to not be left with a load of guilt in our minds and hearts, but to be left with hope because of your presence in us, Christ in us, the hope of glory. So we do not remain in our guilt or concerns about our failures, but we, we run to our Savior with our failures and lay them at his feet. We run to you, Jesus, because you're a kind and gentle shepherd. We run to you, Savior, because you came for this purpose, that you would grow in us, that we would become like you more and more every day, to be serving, to be struggling in ministry as you did every day of your life on earth. Father, please be gracious to us, be merciful to us. Draw us into your presence. Encourage our hearts as we run to you for grace. And I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our only Lord and Savior. Amen.